Well, last uh, week during Thanksgiving, our family took a trip to Pennsylvania to visit some longtime friends, and uh, I surprised them by taking them to uh, D.C. on the way and got to see a few things. So um, there's us at the Capitol building. Yeah. <laughs> I don't usually walk like this. <laughs> there we are, so we're enjoying that, and then at the Lincoln Memorial. So um, it's interesting, though, uh, we enjoyed that trip, but how many of you have ever, I'd like to go to Israel one day. Anybody been to Israel? Okay, all right. Anybody want to go to Israel? Some of you put your hand up again, you want to go back, that's fine. But um, there are memorials all over D.C., uh, like this one, Um, but if you go to Israel, you won't find a memorial of that size to Jesus Christ, and uh, you might find a little tomb supposed tomb under an old church somewhere that they claim to be there. But you won't find a massive big monument to Jesus Christ like the Jefferson or Washington or Lincoln memorials or anything like that. You see, in other religions, oops, let me scoot back there. In other religions, they focus a lot on the life of the particular founder or on maybe the teachings of the particular founder, or maybe the accomplishments. But in Christianity, we don't do that. We do love the teachings and the miracles and all of that, but as Christians who truly love Jesus Christ, we treasure His death. And that's a difference. And that's why the unbelieving world will look at the Christian religion and say it's odd, because we worship the leader who died a poor criminal's death on a cross. So before we get to the text this morning, you can turn there to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. I just want to give you a background quickly. And Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth. And these Christians were divided. They're living in Corinth. They were divided among themselves. Some were not living for Christ as they should. One reason was they were mixing the worldly philosophy with Christianity, that was one thing that Paul addresses. And then the second is they were glorying in man rather than in God for his power for salvation. And so chapters 1 and 2, Paul deals with this worldly wisdom in contrast to godly wisdom. And today specifically, we're going to look at the wisdom of God when it comes to the gospel. So we're going to pick up in chapter 1 from verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we study His Word together. Lord God, we ask this morning that You would please take these eternal truths and that you would engraft them into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So let's take a walk step by step through this passage. For the message of the cross, verse 18, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Some of your versions may have the word word, the word of the cross. It's the word logos. It's where we get our word logic from. The logic of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This word, this message of the cross, means all of the gospel. It means from before Genesis to after Revelation. It means everything before the cross that pointed towards the cross and everything after the cross that explains the cross. This word of the cross. That is why here at Orchard Community Church we hold highly the word of God. We proclaim it everywhere from the nursery to this pulpit. We believe that it is necessary. You see, the revelation of God, the gospel, it pinnacles, it peaks in the cross of Christ. And it is set against the wisdom of man. And Paul says that these two things are against each other. They are opposite, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God in the cross. The world thinks that the cross is foolishness. Now the gospel that we have in the word of God here is not the proclamation of a great prophet. It's not the proclamation of a great leader or a great teacher. But the gospel actually proclaims a publicly humiliated, crucified Savior. That's what the gospel shows us. And unfortunately, sometimes in movies that we have today, about, what, 15 years ago, the movie uh, The Passion of the Christ came out by Mel Gibson. And people, when we watch it, we tend to just focus on the physical atrocities of that very cruel day. And that, that is there. But it's not the main thing. It's not the purpose of the cross. You see, we forget the greatness of the actual picture of a crucified Savior. In Jesus' day, the cross was a, it was a brutal sign. It would drum up emotions of fear, of pain, of torture. For the Jewish people, the cross, they saw it as, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, accursed of God was anyone who hung on a tree. So that's the view that they had. For the Greeks, the cross was kind of like the gallows on which a slave or a murderer would be put. And so any association that one back then would draw with the cross would be one of shame or agony. In the world today, the very least that they do is ignore the cross. Sometimes even for believers, we forget what the cross stands for. And we can often sing about the cross. We can decorate buildings with the cross, even our Bible covers or homes or ourselves with jewelry about the cross. But sometimes we don't remember what it all stands for, especially this time of the year with Christmas and then later on in Easter. It just becomes one of the things that we do. You see, the cross is important, but it's not so much that the cross that it was the cross. You see, many people were crucified in Jesus' day. It wasn't special that he was crucified, okay, on a cross. What was special, and what was actually what Peter calls a scandal, was that it was the Son of God that was crucified on the cross, not the fact that it was crucifixion per se. But you see, that's how God works in his wisdom. He takes the worst that mankind can do 
in crucifying his son and he turns it in the best thing ever for mankind. Salvation. That's how God works it. That's, can, that can only be a wise plan of God to take that. So the idea of a crucified Savior was absurd. I mean, no human being would ever want to invent such a story like that. And certainly if they invented it, they wouldn't give their life for that story. Imagine you were one of the disciples and you were sitting around with your other disciple friends. You said, hey, you know, let's, let's start a world religion. Why don't we say that there was a really good guy and he never did anything wrong and then he was in turn blamed for the sins of others and he was crucified in front of many witnesses and then he was placed in a borrowed tomb and then he walked, rose and walked around for 40 days and poof, disappeared into the clouds. I mean that, there's one word for a story like that and Paul uses it here. He says that would be foolishness okay, to, to a human logic and a human Wisdom, it is, it is too preposterous, this scheme. It's too vile, it's too bloody, it's too illogical. But God intended it that way. See, God has always required a payment and a sacrifice for sins. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, those, that wasn't sufficient. In fact, that Old Testament sacrifice pointed to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Those sacrifices were never sufficient, and they weren't intended to be. They were always pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. So God has always required a payment for sins. But to illustrate, let's just say, I'll pick on Mark Bernruter. So let's just say after church today, I walk up to Mark, and he comes up, and I slap him (laughs) in the face. Okay, that would be horrifying. Let's just say it was all in front of all of you guys. And slap, and people would be a bit grumpy with me. Uh, maybe want to slap me. Maybe the elders would call me in. I'm like, it's not how you should be acting. Even if it is Mark, no. <laughs> That's not how you should be acting. And maybe I'll get a slap on the wrist. I don't know. But that would be about sort of maybe what would happen. Now, let's just say when I was in D.C. a few days ago, <clears throat> I've been to see President Obama walking down the road, and I walk up to him and I say, Hey, dish. <laughs> and I slap President Obama. Doubtfully, I would just get a slap on the wrist. I would probably be stuck in jail with, and, and all of that. What was the, 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 the act was no different, me slapping Mark or me slapping President Obama. The difference was in who the offense was committed against that brought on the punishment. Now, God is infinitely more holy than President Obama, okay? And our offense, our sin towards God is infinite. That's why we will pay in hell for all eternity and never come close to paying it off, okay? That is why Christ, God's Son, the infinitely perfect righteous one, had to die for sins. Okay. That is the wisdom of the gospel. You see, many today, unfortunately, they would look at this and say, this gospel of a crucified Savior from an unsaved human perspective is foolishness. See, the world religions today have tried to take Jesus and make him a good person. Say, so, oh no, if you speak to uh, Muslims, um, in particular, I used to work with a Muslim, 
They say, no, Jesus is a good guy. He was a good teacher. He had some good things to say, a good prophet, and all of those things. But that, that's not an option. C.S. Lewis writes, and he gives you a, a three-pronged fork. He says, you only really have three options about Jesus Christ. And one of them is not he's a good teacher and a good prophet. Okay? Jesus said that he was Lord. Okay? He was God. So either Jesus, now, this side, knew he wasn't God. Okay? He's saying, I am God, and he knew he wasn't. That would be called somebody who would be a liar. Okay? I'm not God, but I'm telling you I am God. Or Jesus wasn't God, but he really thought he was God. That would be somebody you would call a lunatic. Okay? And C.S. Lewis uses this word. He says, so either he thinks he's God and isn't, he's a lunatic, or he knows he's not God and tells everybody he is, he's a liar. That's the options. The only other option that C.S. Lewis gives is, either he tells you he's God and he is God, the only third option you have is, he is therefore Lord. He's either a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he's Lord. There's no room for a good person, a good teacher, some nice things to say. Unbelievers must come to that fork in the road. In this passage here, Paul talks about two people, two types of people in a very interesting way. He sort of says, those who are in the process of perishing, okay, those who are perishing, and those who are in the process of being saved. And we're going to look at those quickly. In the process of withering and dying in their sin, which will ultimately lead to hell and a conscious eternal punishment. That's the process of perishing. Okay, These perishing people, the first problem that they have is that um, they're blind to their own condition. And if they stay in their own condition and, and try and get out of it with their own human wisdom, it's not going to help, as we'll see in a moment. But they are blind. It's like me taking, you're going to have a lot of Washington, D.C. analogies today. It's like me taking a blind person to the National Gallery and going, look at these masterpieces. I can't describe the colors. I can't describe the colors in any case, but I can't describe the colors to them and the patterns and the shapes and everything. It would be meaningless to them. And they are blind in their sin. And the very fact that this mankind is perishing shows that their wisdom is inadequate to save them. Another person that Paul mentions here is those who are being saved. Now, salvation has three tenses. There's the tense of the past in that one day when you trusted Christ and He saved you. Okay, There's that tense of salvation. There's also the tense as it is used here where we are being saved. We are being made more like Christ. We are being sanctified. We are brought along this process. That's what God is doing in our life, the being saved. And then there's the third one, which is the future that we look forward to in hope, is that when one day we will be saved from this wretched world, from these wretched bodies, and we will be saved eternally and with God forever. So that's the tenses that we have in being saved. And he's talking about this, those who are perishing on their route to hell in the way they're living, and those who are being saved, being made more like Christ. And the reason the message is this message of the cross is foolishness to the perishing is because perishing and human beings have elevated their own wisdom, their own philosophy against the cross. And they look at the cross and they go, that's crazy. The word foolishness is the word we actually get is for moronic. It is insane. It is senseless. 
And they look at the cross in their own wisdom and go, that is madness. Mankind then, in Paul's time, and even more now, we, we drum up these um, philosophies. We've got lots of these complex philosophies to try and help ourselves out. And when the gospel is presented to people in such a simple message, it doesn't make sense to them because they want to elevate their own logic above the cross. You see, God in human flesh coming to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins, and then you by trusting in Christ and in the act that He did and His resurrection, you can then be saved and your eternal destiny is secured in heaven forever. People look at it and go, what? That's ridiculous, you know. The death of one man on a piece of wood in a nondescript place. You mean to tell me and then that <clears throat> would change my eternal destiny? No. The Greeks and the Jews, they looked at this and said, this is a load of foolishness. And even perishing mankind today does the same thing. One reason I believe that people look and despise the gospel and the cross is that it actually allows no place for man's merit, man's accomplishment, man's attainment, man's pride. You see, when you take the gospel, this is gospel mathematics, you take the gospel and you say, Christ plus anything equals nothing. That's gospel mathematics. Christ and? No, not my human logic or anything or my actions, not at all. Christ alone is sufficient to save. So let's keep going. Are we on verse 18? Or is that 19? Sorry, verse 18. But to us who are being saved, <clears throat> it is the power of God. I love this word, the power of God. Greek is dynamos, dunamos. It's where we get dynamite from. Okay, It is the power of God. Paul uses this in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to those who believe. So don't miss this now. Why is the cross the power of God? Why is it the power of God? Well, it's the power of God because in the death of Christ alone, and the death of Christ alone has the ability to forgive sins. That's the only thing. It's the death of Christ alone has the ability to forgive sins. When uh, there was a paralyzed man and they couldn't get him to Jesus. Remember, they had four friends, took him upstairs and broke through the roof and lowered him down. First elevator in the Bible. Lowered him down. And Jesus says to him, get up and your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees, they kind of panic. They go, who on earth can forgive sins except God? And God only forgives sins in Christ. The Old Testament pointed to it from us now looking back at the cross. It is the power of God to forgive sins. So maybe you have walked with the Lord for many years. I want to encourage you, don't be tempted here to sort of move on from the cross. You see, whenever we're tempted to move on, you know, I did a cross there. Uh, and we move on, we tend to move into our human efforts and our human wisdom and our human understanding. We must never do that. We never move on from the cross. We only ever move deeper into it. That's the gospel. I must also mention here that the same power of God, this dunamis, okay, it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. 
It's the same power that made you a new creature, born again. It's the same power that lives in you by the Holy Spirit to enable you, like we learned last week, to present yourselves as living sacrifices. That's the same power. And you see, mankind doesn't want that. Mankind wants a rationalism and philosophies because it elevates human ego. It won't stoop to something that is so simple as to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself even said it. He said, if you are not going to become like a little child, meaning simple in your faith, simple in your trust, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this church that Corinth was right, that Paul was writing to in Corinth was rife with human philosophies. It's the same today in our Western world that we live in. And Paul wasn't about to give these Corinthian believers, or this Corinthian place that he was writing to, another philosophy to hang on their wall. Okay? He didn't want to give them that. He wanted to bring them the true message that would pound home something that was very opposite to what their world was teaching them. He wanted to give them something simple, not complex. Something very historical and not sort of ethereal. He wanted to give them something that was concrete and objective, not sort of subjective and something that was foggy. He wanted to give them the cross. And he kept doing that. He was with them for 18 months that he stayed with the Corinthians. And he gave them. If you read through Corinthians, the book, the letter that he wrote, and 2 Corinthians, you'll see this all the time. Well, Peter, he didn't even understand this at first. This wisdom of the cross when Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, he comes to Peter, or he comes to the disciples, and he tells them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Peter pulls him aside and says, uh-uh, no, 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 <laughs> that's not working, all right? You're meant to, in his mind, set up the kingdom here, overthrow the Romans, and maybe I'll get a little place on the side. That was, that was Peter's thinking. And he tells Jesus, no. That's not right. My thought pattern, my logic, my wisdom says something else. And Jesus firmly rebukes Peter and says, what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. He's saying to Peter, your philosophy is satanic. It is opposed to the wisdom of God and the cross that I must go and face. And you would think that Peter would learn, but not Peter in the beginning. The second time he stands... In opposition, this time he grabs a sword. My name is Uigo Montoyo. (laughs) You killed my father. No, he grabs a sword the next time. And he goes, he was going for the head of that servant, Malchus, uh, the high priest. You know, he was going for his head, but he ducked and got his ear. Okay? And Jesus says, put that thing away. You are showing me by your actions, by your thoughts, that you are opposed to the wisdom of God. The logic of the cross. You are opposed to that. But thankfully for Peter, he didn't end there. After the resurrection, after the ascension, it became for Peter the power of God for his salvation. And he understood. So we have this contrast that is established in verse 18. The cross is the power of God to salvation. But to the world that is steeped in human wisdom, it is moronic. It is insane and foolish. And Paul gives us some reasons why he considers 
You know, God's wisdom to save sinners superior to man's wisdom. Well, firstly, God's wisdom is permanent. And man's wisdom is temporary. You see, God's always wise and has always been and will always be. If you look at verses 19 to 20, Paul now uses the Old Testament to draw his point, showing that man's wisdom will be swept away and destroyed. It says there, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. He says, For it is written, Isaiah 29, 14 actually says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now there is a twofold meaning here that Paul is talking about. He's saying that ultimately, one day, there is a forward looking that one day, okay, when Jesus comes and is King of Kings and reigns and rules on this earth, that all of man's wisdom will come to ashes. It will be destroyed. So that's the ultimate fulfillment of it. But there is also an immediate fulfillment in the time of Isaiah. So we have to go and look at that time of Isaiah to get an understanding of how Paul applies it and it will shed insight for us in the Corinthian passage. So at this time, there was this mighty king by the name of Sennacherib. He was the Assyrian king, and he wanted to conquer King Hezekiah and Judah. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to Judah, okay, don't worry, deliverance will come, and Sennacherib will fail in all of his conquerings. And God said to them, it won't be with your wise men. It won't be with your battle strategies and your political advisors. It won't be your cunning or your secret trickery or anything like that. Nope. You're not going to escape the hand of this Assyrian king because of your wisdom. God says to him, I will do it. I will do it myself and I will demonstrate to you how impotent your wisdom is and how impermanent your wisdom is. And so when all of your wisdom is done and you have nothing, no answers, and they didn't have any answer against King Sennacherib, then I will show you my wisdom in rescuing you and in saving you. And so Sennacherib, he had a huge army. And if God was going to deal with Sennacherib, people would think, you know, he really needs to come to the party with this thing. So God, in all of his might and wisdom, sends one angel. Just one. There he goes. And he smote the whole of the Assyrian army. 185,000 people. It's interesting, a little term. It says they woke up and they found they were dead. (laughs) What happened was is some who were left, a handful, woke up and went, ooh, wow, okay? That's what the Bible means there. It says, so what do you learn? You don't mess with angels, firstly, okay? But what Israel couldn't do and what all of their wisdom and their knowledge and the best of the people couldn't come up with, God did with one angel and rescued them. And so when we look back at Corinthians now, Paul says, you look at that Isaiah passage. He says, God never needed wisdom from the humans, an understanding of theirs to rescue people. But here is a picture of salvation. You see, human wisdom and power couldn't save Israel from Sennacherib. And so too, human wisdom and power cannot save us from our sins. Only God's wisdom and power in the one perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, could save them. We keep on reading in verse 20, and Paul alludes to some other passages in Isaiah here. 
says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, whenever man looks to humanity for answers that only God has, it will always result in worldly foolishness. So he says, where is this wise person? Where is this brain's trust in the war to rescue you from your enemy? Where is the teacher? The actual word here is, where is the scribe? Grammar is the word. Where is the scribe? And what would happen in those days is when a nation would go in and conquer another nation, it would get in there and then they would send the scribes in. And the scribes would write about it. Oh, and then the king did this and the armies did that. Oh, and when we get in there, what do the scribes record? Oh, we, we stole this and we the loot and the booty that they got from all of this stuff. And the scribes would write that. And Paul is looking sarcastically and saying, where is the scribe? You know why? Because you won't ever gain victory. You won't be able to take possession of that rescuing of your own soul. So where is the scribe? There isn't one because you won't ever have the victory. That's what he is saying there. Where is the wise person and the scribe and the philosopher? See, there are no spiritual rescues and salvations in man's wisdom. So the scribes would not have anything to write about. Now, I want you to understand me that mankind has done some amazing things in going to D.C. We went to the Air and Space Museum and saw flight and all of those things and the right brothers and and the left brothers and the wrong brothers. All of them were there. Everything. And we thought that was amazing. Have you ever gone to the the ocean and you've seen one of those aircraft carriers? I mean, that thing's like a city floating. Okay? And then we got people who can attach limbs back and things like that. And we've gone to space. And, and, and have you ever been to Tim Hortons and seen how many muffins they have? <laughs> it's crazy. We went, family went the other day and asked for an orange, uh, what do you call it, a pumpkin spice muffin. And they said, oh, sorry, we don't have any. And then my wife asked them the wrong question. What do you have? <laughs> well, excuse me, ma'am. We've got 73 different flavors. And mankind is clever in, in many respects. I mean... Even coffee. Personally, though, I think if you have to use like five adjectives to order a drink, it's probably not something you would be drinking. You know, like it's, what's it, it's no fat, decaf, skinny boy latte, no foam. It's probably not something that you should be drinking. But we look at mankind and we say, wow, we're clever. We've done things. Fly, muffins, everything. But all of our education has never really solved our main problem. I say, wait a minute, you know, we used to live like in the boonies, and now we're in cities and things like that. We're no better off here than we were there with our sin problem. Not at all. Nothing has changed. We're just as rotten. We've actually just made our sin more comfortable, more accommodated here. Human wisdom can and never will be able to solve a spiritual problem. Even with this intelligence, man is blind to his own condition and will never find this rescue. Let me keep moving. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, and God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In other words, this is amazing. God decided in His wisdom that human wisdom would not be the path that would find Him. That's what it says there. Because if humans found God 
and save themselves by their own intelligence, they would be able to boast, you know, I bridged the gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness. I bridged the gap between man and God. I bridged the gap between the finite and the infinite. And that would exalt man and it would not exalt the cross of Christ. See, man's wisdom delights in seeing himself as being resourceful and being self-sufficient and being self-determining and not utterly dependent on God's free grace. So if you think about it, the perishing astronomer without Christ looks at the stars and sees no God. The perishing uh, sort of natural scientist looks at the botany and looks at the biology and he comes up with evolution without a source. Even the perishing religionist creates an idol god and worships that god who is actually no god at all. And the people that Paul was writing to in Corinth were very much along those lines. In fact, when he went to there to Athens, the city of thinking and philosophy, and he went up to Mars Hill, the big hill, and on top of Mars Hill was the Areopagus, this massive building that contained a whole lot of idols. He gets up there and walks around and he looks and he sees what? He sees one there, to the unknown God. And actually those people in their wisdom did not know the true God. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the God that your wisdom will never find. I'm going to tell you about God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ who came to die for sinners. The world through its wisdom did not know Him. You see, human wisdom nullifies the cross, but God's wisdom upholds the meaning, the true meaning of the cross. You see, the cross is a a continental divide between man's wisdom and God's. The cross of Christ that shines forth, um, it shows us our ungodliness and our helplessness. It shows the unimpeachable God of justice but it also shows the undeserved grace that that same God gives to us. So at the cross, His wrath and His mercy meet. You see, what offends human wisdom about the cross is that it actually humbles man. It says, you cannot do it. And it exalts the unearnable grace of God. Listen to John Piper in his book called Think. It's a a very thought-provoking book. He says this, he says, he's talking about God's wisdom in the cross and um, how it makes the glory of God's grace our supreme treasure. That's John Piper. He says this, the reason the cross is called the wisdom of God is that the heart of God's wisdom is his commitment in the work of salvation to uphold and exalt the glory of his grace for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. That's what the cross does, exalts the glory of God's grace for the enjoyment of His people. I'm always amazed by the next part there. It says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who would believe. Now the word preached there isn't what I'm doing right now to you folks over there. It's not the verb to preach. It actually has nothing to do with the act of preaching at all but it has everything to do with the content of the message. You see, it says there, what was preached. The foolishness of what was preached. 
See, God was pleased by the content of what the cross stood for to save them that believed. Isn't the idea that preaching is foolish? I'm sure some preaching is foolish, okay? But that's not what is going on here. That's not the point. The point here is that the foolishness of the gospel itself, the content of what is preached, this low seems so, it's uncomplicated, it's distasteful, it's moronic, it's foolish. Jesus dying on the cross? Well, you don't need to be smart to understand that. Notice what it says there. It doesn't say at the end of verse 21, to save them that are intellects, to save them that have PhDs, or to save them that are wise. No, what does it say there? It says to save them that believe. Believe. I'm, I'm glad about that. Now, this word believe is, you've got to be careful. If I had a, it's not, it's not the word, oh, I just know about God. In James chapter 2, it talks about the demons believe and they shudder. Okay? So they have a knowledge about God. It's like if I had a chair up here and I say, well, I know everything about that chair. It's got four legs. It's made of aluminium, aluminum, <laughs> metal. You say metal, don't you? <laughs> it's made of there, and it's got four legs, and it's this. I even know the guy who made the chair. Is that going to help? No. What do I have to do? To sit in the chair. Trust in the chair. That's what believe is. It's not a knowledge about, okay, to those who would believe. Wouldn't it be awful if only smart people were saved? I don't know how many Orchidians would be in heaven. I certainly wouldn't be. Okay? But God doesn't save you because you're smart. You got street wise. It's not at all. He has made it so simple that it doesn't matter how smart you are, we need to trust in and to believe. I must say though that you do need a cognitive understanding. I am a sinner. Okay? There is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. I need to trust in Him. So there's an understanding of it. So you need to be smart in that way that you can understand. But it's not about someone who is brilliant in their own philosophy and own understanding. Most of us are just common folk. And I'm grateful for that. And you know what? God actually purposely does it this way and, st- and that He saves those who are unwise. Okay? He said, and he uses the foolish cross. He does this purposely so that for all time, it will always stand in rebuke. The cross will stand in rebuke of the wisdom of man. That's what God does. He never needed our human wisdom in the past. He doesn't need it now. All God needs is the cross of Christ and us that we trust in that cross of our Savior. Now, with all this being said, you would think that um, man would welcome this message of hope. There it is, the first week in Advent. Message of hope. The hope to be at peace with God. But we don't, you see. Mankind looks at the cross of Christ with scorn and and derision and doesn't welcome that because it means that he can't save himself and there's the pride there. So maybe that is still you today. Maybe you're looking at the cross of Christ and it's foolishness to you. It's insane. And you are one of those people, the the perishing. And you are heading to a path of destruction. Maybe you look at the messages. 
the songs that are sung, the prayers that are prayed week in and week out, and they have no bearing on your life. I just want to encourage you. You still have breath in your lungs. You still have blood that is pumping through your veins. It's not too late. You need to run to Christ. You need to trust in Him. He's the only Savior of the world. You need to surrender your life to Him. And for those of us here maybe today, the the saved, those who are saved, being saved, okay, the question is, is do you relish in the cross of Christ, the gospel? Do you treasure it? Do you contemplate the cross of Christ? Do you absorb it? If you're like me, maybe your answer would be sometimes. I do. Well, as we come to take communion this morning, um, we need to pray to the Lord to ask Him to renew that in our hearts. That we would see the cross of Christ as the wisdom of God to save us wretched sinners. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for our fellowship this morning. um, For the message of the cross that is so simple and clear to us. We thank you that our confidence is not in human philosophy, um, but it's in a crucified Savior. We give you praise for Christ. Lord, if there are some here this morning who do not know you yet, who are still holding on to human wisdom, God, I pray that by your Spirit you would break that vain trust in their own human wisdom and free their heart to seek Christ. Those of us us who are Christians here today, please keep us pure and continue to sanctify us um, by your dynamite power. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.